Welcome to Fine Rambles, number 166. Okay, I think this is going to be a fast one, but I'm excited because, well, I think the most pretentious way to put it (laughs) is that I've written my memoirs. (laughs) As most of you know, I was an investment banking analyst from 2000 until 2003. And over the last few months, I've just gone back and written... I think it's 52 very, very short chapters describing some of the experiences that I had and were, I don't know, traumatic, memorable, however you want to describe it. And now they're finally done. So I've published them on an online site called Fiction Press under the title Three Years in the Engine Room under the nom de plume, (laughs) pretension times two, under the nom de plume of Sam Taylor. And I'll include a link in the show notes. So check them out if you want. All I'm going to do today is just read two of those short chapters. Chapter nine, prisons have work release. We had lunch. The 10 minutes we took to grab a sandwich and a bag of chips were a brief respite from the colorless monotony of the office and a chance to breathe fresh, non-recirculated air. Fresh, that is, except for the horse manure, auto exhaust, hot asphalt, subway steam, and hot dogs of unknown provenance. Free to go anywhere, we developed fixed routines. Most days, I went with Jack to one of the 58th Street hole-in-the-walls with six feet of frontage. We'd pile into the scrum at the counter, shout our orders, watch impatiently as butcher paper was expertly folded, cue at the register, and then rush back to the office. Why did we rush back? Why didn't we chat in two on a bench in Central Park or even walk around the block? We felt like lab rats let out of our cages. We were free, yes, but exposed. Outside was the great unknown. We were disoriented by the light, dazed after our long confinement. We looked up instinctively for circling vultures. The office may have been our purgatory, but its terrors were familiar. We were kids playing hooky. What if Mr. Baker was looking for us at that very moment, his face growing redder, his fury mounting at our mutinous absence? We were running an errand knowing the gas was on. The dread built cumulatively. The urge to return became irresistible. That pressure only lifted once we made it back to our desks, like hide-and-seekers yelling, BASE! Safe at last, we sighed with relief and sank down into the well-worn butt creases of our chairs with the anodyne knowledge that this was where we belonged. Then, we'd reverently unwrap our sandwiches and pray to the god of small, helpless creatures for five minutes of uninterrupted tranquility. Please, Lord, just let me eat in peace. (laughs) There are no atheists at lunchtime. Our prayers usually went unanswered. In fact, so often were our lunches interrupted that we started to wonder if the bosses weren't deliberately waiting for the telltale crackle of a sandwich being unwrapped before swooping down and demanding that we come to their office. Right now, immediately, we grabbed our notebooks and followed meekly, looking over our shoulders with a regretful sigh, the way a soldier called away to war looks wistfully back at his fiancée. Our stomachs, roused by the savor of that first bite, didn't understand what was happening. Where could we possibly be going at a time like this? Didn't we see our sandwiches sitting there, waiting hopefully, like dogs ordered to stay but pleading with their liquid eyes? When our stomachs realized we weren't just grabbing a soda, but were indeed abandoning our sandwiches, they growled with impotent anger. 
Meanwhile, we had to keep a serious, non-mournful, non-condemning face while the boss gave us a new interminable list of marching orders, all the while stuffing his face with his sandwich. By the time we made it back to our desks, well, (laughs) there's nothing sadder or more forlorn than a sandwich grown cold with neglect. Orphaned puppies come in second. Everything else is a distant third. Sometimes, while out getting lunch, you ran across another 26-floor AWOL. This was always an unsettling experience, like, like seeing your teacher during summer vacation or bumping into your college roommate in Kathmandu. They didn't belong there. Nobody knew what to say in that situation. We usually just did that thing where you arch your eyebrows, purse your lips, and move on as quickly as possible. Okay, chapter 14. The first-year analysts were in charge of ordering dinner. You first had to solicit ideas. If you didn't reach a consensus quickly, one of the associates would pop up and demand a certain restaurant. You then had to walk around and write down what everyone wanted, call the restaurant, shout out the order over the clatter and clang of the kitchen, listen as the order was read back, make corrections, read out your personal credit card number at least twice, and then announce to the bullpen the food's estimated time of arrival. This started the clock. Everyone would bend to their work, warm with the knowledge that dinner was on its way. But not for long. Soon they were antsy with anticipation, constantly checking the clock. Where was the delivery guy? What if the restaurant got my order wrong? What if the delivery guy had the wrong address and my dinner was never, ever going to arrive? Angst turned to anger as soon as the expected arrival time passed. The tension turned palpable. People stopped working and started pacing. Indignant questions and demands were shouted across the bullpen. You were often pressured into calling the restaurant again to check on the status of the order. Finally, the call from security came. You sagged with relief. I'll be right down. You dashed to the lobby, signed the bill, got loaded down like a camel with saddlebags, staggered first to the elevator and then to the back conference room, and desperately tried to pull out the plastic containers of Italian or Indian before the descending mob tore the bags apart like starving piranhas swarming a wounded capybara. After dinner, the ordering analyst wrote down the name of everyone who had ordered and the project they were working on. If there weren't enough names to cover the cost of the food, you had to add people who had managed to leave early. You then scotch-taped the curry-stained, wrinkled receipt to a piece of printer paper. You did the same with your cab receipts, and then every six weeks, you turned in a stack of pages with the expense report stapled to the top. The office manager sat on these reimbursement requests for months. In other words, a handful of broke first-year analysts provided their millionaire bosses with tens of thousands of dollars of free float. If you were lucky, one day you found an envelope on your chair with a check inside. If you were unlucky, the office manager pulled you into her office and held your feet to the fire. She would peel off a taxi receipt, a two-inch square piece of white paper covered in tiny purple type that was smudged and already fading, and thrust it into your face. Had this $5 cab ride really been from the office, or were you trying to steal from the firm by expensing personal trips? Explain yourself. These grillings left a bitter taste in my mouth especially since the office manager always made it clear that I was presumed guilty. Nothing has ever tempted me to break a rule more than being accused of having already broken it. But these interrogations taught me to keep my temper and a straight face. 
I learned how to answer questions like a subpoenaed witness in front of Congress. At least once a week, I would spend my $20 dinner allowance at the local bodega. The sneeze-guarded, lukewarm buffet cost $6.99 a pound. I bought toilet paper and deodorant with whatever was left over. This skullduggery saved me an extra $30 a month. Okay, that's it. I'll catch you next week.